Well, this morning, if you want to open in your Bibles to our main text, it will be Psalm 99. At uh, Best Buy, there were moments where you would not want to talk to people about TVs anymore. I, I, can, I hope you can imagine that being a moment where you just, I'm, I'm done with, uh, I actually had a woman ream me out for about three hours. I ended up helping with her because they didn't make square TVs anymore and she didn't know where she would set her cable box. And I was like, lady, I don't manufacture these things. Call China. Like, I have nothing to do Nothing to do with this. And so in those moments, you would see uh, people begin to, to cluster up. And we ca- they called them blueberry patches. They have a blueberry patch of people. And as they would talk about whatever. And then eventually, uh, you would see a manager kind of come walking down an aisle. And you can imagine what happens next, right? They scatter like cockroaches when the light turns on. Everybody runs there, starts dusting or pretending like they were doing something other than nothing at all. And perhaps you've experienced that too. Those of you who are young and in school, you should be, you know, at your computer or at your desk doing something, but instead you're fooling around on Facebook or doodling or falling asleep, whatever it might be. And you get caught and you quickly begin to Go back to work, pretending like you were actually doing something. This thing which we experience naturally just in our lives is something that that Jesus uh, latches onto and says is actually a great spiritual deficit in our lives if we are not keeping watch. He says in Matthew chapter 24 to stay awake because we do not know the day when he is coming back. Be alert, be ready, be about the business of your Lord. And he tells various stories, we call them parables, stories that have appointed meaning. He talks about a businessman who has great wealth and he leaves these great sums of money with three of his stewards and says, go make something of this, turn it into more money, start a business, do something with it so that when I come back, there's more than what we started with. He tells a story of of a man who owns a vineyard and he's going on a journey and he leaves that vineyard in in the hands of his servants servants and he says I'm going to come back and I expect you know things are running and the harvest has come in he tells a story of a of a of a bunch of uh, bridesmaids who have gathered together and they're waiting the groom to to show up so they can go into the wedding feast and begin to have the the big celebration the big feast the wedding can complete itself and some of them have been prepared and some of them have been slack lazy they fell asleep and so when the bridegroom comes they're not ready and they are not ushered into the wedding though they pound and beat upon the door. These metaphors, these, these stories, these parables are all meant to drive home a singular point that we who believe in God must remain faithful to the end. That we must be careful. We must not be lazy. We must not be slow. And if there's one thing that I see as a great danger in the American church today, it is precisely that it isn't that we don't believe in jesus anymore it isn't that we never show up to church anymore it isn't that you know we're we're we're, we we're completely uh, repudiating the good things that we read in the scriptures it's that we're careless with the details that we're slack that we're lazy that our lord has tarried a long time in coming and things are very easy for us right now doesn't cost you anything to say you're a Christian. And so because of these things all working together, this great danger hovers over us. And our movement, the restoration, restoration movement, began with a passion to rebuke that 
carelessness and go back to the scriptures asking the most important question that any human being can ever ask. What does God want from me? You will not ask a question more important than that in your whole entire life. What does God want from me? Does it matter if we take communion? Does it matter how we baptize or who we baptize or if we baptize? Does it matter if our preaching comes from Scripture or whether Scripture is just sort of a tertiary part of what we're about? Does it matter if we're searching the Scriptures for the truth, asking the questions, what did our Lord command? What did the disciples do? And trying to model our lives accordingly does it matter if we call people to repentance and holiness or do we just say live and let live and god can kind of maybe sort it out at the end but he probably won't because he's just a god of love anyway does it matter and my prayer uh our prayer throughout this series that we've been doing why this is that your answer will be a resounding yes it matters It is no small thing to come before a living God. And that is what you have proposed to do this morning. You have gathered together to worship the living God. That is no small thing. That is a deeply serious thing. And we invite danger and judgment upon ourselves as the church of God if we we treat it as anything less than what, what it is. And so I don't assume that everyone here will, will be here for the rest of your life. Perhaps you will, you will you'll, you'll get a new job and you'll go somebody, somewhere else. Or maybe you're a visitor here today and you're just kind of you're trying to figure out what, what church is, is, is right for your family as, you're, as you've moved into the Portage area. My hope in prayer is that you will find a church that practices communion regularly because it matters. A church that baptizes properly because it matters. A church that preaches and teaches from the word of God because it matters. A church that calls people to repentance and to holiness because these things matter. In fact, if I could make a sales pitch, a plug... For the restoration movement and why, uh, why I love it so much, it isn't that we have the biggest churches, because we don't. It isn't because we have the biggest bands, because we don't. It isn't because we have the biggest youth groups, because we don't. It isn't because we're the fanciest or the sleekest or the smartest. Boy, I'm not doing a very good job. If we're honest, we don't have those things. But what we do have is Scripture. You go to any other church, you will have scripture and this. And this isn't a criticism of them. It's, it's very great that they have a plus. We don't have a plus. We have scripture. And what you will get if you come to our churches, if you go to our colleges, and if you send your children to our camps is this. A consistent search through the scriptures asking the question, who is God? How can I know him? How can through knowing him I receive his salvation and share in his glory? Who is God? And how can I know him? The most important questions that we can answer. And that is what we as a church are all about. And that's what this series is is meant to, to drill in and drive home. And today we come to perhaps the most important of all of the topics that we have to discuss. And that is worship. Worship. Now... What is worship? Uh, I feel like I need to, to, to um, make some uh, 
adjustments in our thinking just from the outset because worship is not everything. Worship specifically as a word functioning within Hebrew and Greek is to take and bow yourself or prostrate yourself before a king, uh, before an idol, if you know in some circumstances, or before God, God himself. To physically put yourself in a position of humiliation. I want, you, I want that to stick in your mind. Of humiliation. That you in all humility have said, I am under your authority. I am under your power. It is when we do this that worship begins to happen. Do you understand that? To worship God is to claim his ultimate and total authority over everything you feel, you think, and you do. It's no small thing. I want to uh, look at a, a verse here from, Roman, or from Revelation really quick. I'll put it up because I know it's not the, the main text. helps if I turn it on. Oops, sorry. And it says this. Uh, when he that is the lamb, that is Jesus, had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. I I realize I didn't click all the way through. Sorry. Uh, What do we see in this text, in this passage? We see the elders physically bowing down, falling prostrate before them. We see a physical response to the glory and power and dominion of Almighty God. We see there is declarations of praise. There is glorification of God's name and for the acts that he has done on behalf of his people. The salvific power that he has brought upon us. There is uh, all of that contained within a song. And so what is worship? If I put it simply, it is to with both body and mind, will, heart, and mouth to declare the power, authority, dominion, grace, and goodness of Almighty God. Now in searching the scriptures, you probably won't find a lot of verses that say you must worship God. It's sort of a foregone conclusion That if you encounter the real and living God, it will bring you to a point where you are drawn, you are dragged, you are unable to do anything else other than fall on your knees. In fact, I want to share this verse also from Revelation. Really like it. Uh, Revelation 1.17, when I saw him, this is John speaking, he has this vision, and he has this vision of Jesus. I fell at his feet as though dead. I really like that. Uh, Because it's not like, John has this vision. And remember, this is just a vision. This isn't like Jesus as we will see him. This isn't reality. This is a vision that he has. He doesn't, you know, slowly get on his knees and say, yes, I'll bow before you. He doesn't uh, have this, uh, well, what should I do? I guess I should bow down before you. He doesn't even have this reverent, I'm going to fall. He was, he was standing, he saw God, and he just faints. He just Face plants into the ground as though he was dead. He was alive and then, boom, the glory of God lays him flat. This is the power and the glory and the might of all living God. This is what happens when you encounter God. And if all of that is true, why? 
Why is worship such a low priority in our lives? Because let's be honest, it is. I, I've really been wrestling with this, uh, this more than this week, and really, as Chuck was sharing, this men's Bible study is really, it's done a number on all of us. Um, I've really been wrestling with this. And because, and, and, and forgive me if this isn't the, isn't the way your day works, but, but our days work, you know, you get up and you're running from, you know, whenever Emery screams from her bedroom uh, to, you know, around nine when she's finally passed out. And then there's that moment of bliss, right? This quiet moment where I probably won't get a phone call. Sometimes it happens, but I probably won't. And I, I have, Laura's usually passed out by that time too. And so there's this moment in the evening where I have several hours of, of just like I could do kind of whatever, whatever I want. And so those are the moments that you look forward to, right? Everybody with me? Is this a common experience? Okay, this moment that you're looking forward to all day, you know, oh man, it's just been a long day. I can't wait to fill in the blank. What is it? Sleep. <laughs> I just I want I, I want that to sit in your mind all day you've been or maybe maybe all week you've been running and now it's Friday night and there's nothing going on Saturday morning you are free you can do whatever you want it's the, the your favorite thing I can't wait to is it worship is it worship because if we encountered that real and living God if we really have been transformed by Him. I wonder, maybe it should be worship. Maybe that's where we find our deepest sense of rest and purpose, our deepest sense of wonder and awe, our deepest sense of fulfillment and power. Rather than um, talk about what worship looks like and how you should do it or not do it, I'd rather talk about who you should worship because I think ultimately that's the problem. Ultimately, we have an unbiblical, we have a very small concept of who God is. We don't see him as the scriptures reveal him. And so because of that, our reaction to him follows kind. So in Psalm 99, if we're looking at this as a bird's eye view, um, I uh, have not done a good job of switching. Sorry, guys. And now it's dead again. Um, uh, Psalm 99 is kind of broken up into three stanzas that end with the words, holy is he. Holy is he in verse 3, holy is he in verse 5, and then worship the Lord at his holy mountain, uh, for the Lord our God is holy. Again, holy there in verse 9. So we have sort of these three stanzas. The first section really extols God for his power, his his glory, his dominion. The second stanza exalts him for his equity, for his justice, for his righteousness. And the last displays the holy uh, saints and servants who have served God and his faithfulness in encountering them and being with them. So I, I want to I draw us into this and begin reading here in verse 1, verses 1 through 3. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. 
We begin with a declaration of dominion, of God's sovereignty over the world. It is a fact, it is a statement. God reigns. He rules over all that is. All that is seen and unseen has come from his hands. And therefore, all of it is under his power, his authority, and his control. All of it is his. And because of this fact, the peoples literally tremble. They quake. There is shaking in their bodies. The whole, imagine the whole world, all of the peoples having a vision. In fact, we get this in, in, Psalms, uh, or in Philippians chapter 2, that Jesus will come again, and at his coming, every knee shall bow, which is literally, again, worship, in heaven and in earth and under the earth. Every single person who has, uh, or being, which has lived in, in the heavens, in the place where God dwells, every single person who is alive on earth when Jesus, uh, uh, when Jesus returns, and every single person who has been buried in the ground and has been now resurrected, whether they believed or they didn't believe, whether they were saint or sinner, whether they were rich or poor or black or white or young or old, wherever they were when they died, they will, in that moment, worship Jesus Christ. They will bow before him. And the whole world, all of these people will tremble. They will shake because the judge has returned. He sits, if you notice the company that, that God keeps in this, he sits enthroned between or upon, depending on your translation, the cherubim, and this is in reference to the Ark of the Covenant, which was a golden box upon which uh, there were set cherubim, and, and this, pla- this box was the, the seat of God, that it would be placed in the Holy of Holies, this place that was in the tabernacle, uh, had inches thick of, of fabric that blocked it off from all of the people, and then eventually in the temple itself, great thick stone bricks that separated God, and only once a year the high priest would, would go into that holy place. You're only allowed to be in the presence of God once a year, and he would sprinkle blood upon that, uh, upon that throne, and it was called the mercy seat. It was the place where the atonement and the sins of the people were forgiven and God rested upon it. God sits enthroned in the cherubim. But this is just a, an image of what is happening amongst the throne room of God. And I want to give this to you. So you can kind of get an idea of what we mean when we say cherubim. Because you probably have some ideas um, based off of like TV angels. And that's uh, not the best way to go. So Revelation chapter 4. And that's a slide if you could throw that up for me. Revelation chapter 4 verses 6 through 8 says this. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, so all four sides, are four living creatures. And they are full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion. This isn't to say it is a lion. You've seen a lion at a zoo. If you met a lion in the foyer, you might tremble. If you met something that has eyes in front and behind and is just kind of like a lion in that it has maybe sharp teeth and a mane, you might fall over as if dead, right? You, you, get, you get the point of this. The first is like a lion. It isn't a lion. It's like a lion. The second is like, like an ox, a great horned ox. The third has the face of a man. It's a living creature. It's not a human, but it's a living creature that has the face of a man And the fourth living creature is like an eagle flying. And all four creatures, each of them has six wings, and they are full of eyes, eyeballs all over, within and without, in front and behind. And day and night they circle the throne, and they cry out, 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. This is the company that the living God keeps. If I would fall over dead before, as if dead before just this one of these creatures, these cherubim, how much more before the God who they cry out in praise to? And so as we read these words, the Lord reigns, let his people, or let the peoples, let the people of the earth tremble. He sits enthroned upon upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. It is also evoking for us the vision that Ezekiel had in Ezekiel chapter 1. Because what we see in Ezekiel chapter 1 is that these cherubim are the horses that draw the chariot of God. They're so large, in fact, that that Ezekiel as a human, right, looks up to them and upon them, they're so large their backs touch the sky and as the sky opens, he has a vision of the, the, the throne of God and they carry God. So not only are these creatures like terrifyingly weird, but they're enormous. This is the company which keeps, uh, that God keeps in heaven. This is the one, these are the ones who declare his praises for all eternity. So when we read, every knee will bow and the earth will quake and everything is shaking, it makes a whole lot of sense to us, or it should in this moment. So let all of the people praise him. I want you to notice in verse 2 that it is the Lord that is great in Zion, and he exalt, is exalted all over all the peoples. Now, we don't expect all of the peoples to praise God now, but what we do expect, both as the psalmist was writing and as the church who lives today waiting for the coming of Jesus, we don't expect all the peoples to shake. They are in rebellion against God, but right now, the Lord has made himself manifest to his people, and we exalt him over us, over our ideas over our thoughts, over our wills, over our desires, God is exalted over those things. And because all those things are true, holy is he. I want to pause over that. Because I think it's essential that we recognize that when we say holy, it is a complex word. It means that God is morally different than every other, than human beings. All the things that we think are right are not necessarily what God thinks are right. The things that we feel are not what God feels. The things that we we desire, God does not desire. Everything God thinks is good. Everything God feels is good. Everything God does is good. He is totally and thoroughly unlike us, both in being and in character. And this is important because the temptation that has sat before Christian people and non-Christian people from the beginning of time to today is this, that we are tempted to create a tame God, a God who looks like us, who acts like us, who agrees with us, who does not command, who does not judge, who does not really reign or rule over us. Rather, we rule and reign over him. Instead of exalting God over the peoples, we exalt the peoples over God. Now, surely we don't say, well, of course we'd say, well, we would never do that. No, we do it in practice. We do it in the way we live. We do it in the way we read the newspaper. We do it in the way that we understand the world around us. We create a God of our own desires, and then we use him to stamp our actions. 
Perhaps you saw this horrific news uh, piece this week of a, of a lady who, who shot her children to get back at her husband. They were, according to reports, Christians, who would say, what a horrific act, right? I hope we would. What a horrific act. I, I read in a Christian website that does the news, this man, the headline was man of, uh, some version of the, the, the man whose, whose daughters were shot is now seeking comfort in Christ. And I said, liar. Because he stood in his backyard that morning and told his wife, I want a divorce. I'm done with you. Now certainly it was an evil act for his wife to go out and shoot, um, shoot her daughters. I just can't even fathom how corrupt human, and hopefully this is an image where we begin to see how corrupt and broken our natures are. That this is what can happen to us when left to our own devices. But it started before this when this man says, I no longer care what God has demanded of me and the relationships that I have. And it's carried over. Brokenness begins, I'm sure, long before that and continues on through this family and all of the world looks upon a Christian family and says, what makes that Christian? Does God truly rule and reign over us? Does he get to say, this is right, this is wrong. If you are in me, you will obey. Or does he not? I, I looked at the news this week and I just, I mean, I just, I fell on my knees in worship because I said, we're lost. I mean, we are lost. I read about a, a church it was uh, the largest, one of the largest churches in Washington, D.C. Uh, uh, it invited several years ago Muslims to come in, and, and uh, I, I love Muslims. I, I want them to be, uh, I want them to meet Jesus and come to salvation. Um, we don't have any hate for anyone. Uh, we have no enemies. We only have people that need to hear about Jesus. Uh, but they have invited these Muslims in uh, to, to share their space and now this Muslim congregation who prays in their church to a God who is not our God is larger than the Christian church that started that church. We're lost. What in the world is happening to us? We've forgotten a holy God, a God who in verse 4, the king in his might loves justice. You have established Equity, you have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool, for he is holy. I want you to notice that, that it is justice and it is equity and it is righteousness. And we all want to say that this is, this is wonderful and, this is, and this, is, this is just exactly what we're, we're about. And I think we're liars too. We mistake this to think that what we mean by justice is that God wants us to go out and save the world. No, the world can't be saved. It can only be judged. 
We think what we mean by equity is what we see going on in the world and we want to read that through our own human lenses. It's not, and it can never be. We see these battles between Christians who, you know, they don't want to bake cakes for, for, for weddings that they find to be against what God has called them to do. And of course, the people who want them to bake the cakes say, you have to, we're equal. And so you see that there is no way for this to be solved without one party overtaking the other. There cannot be equality There cannot be peace without a king who has the final word. And the final word, according to this, comes from God. And it either comes from God right now and you bend your knee, or it comes from God later and you experience the fullness of his wrath. I love the cross, and I I don't want this to come across as as me sort of bellyaching or being overly harsh. I love the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save wretched people like me because I am an awful person. I wouldn't let you into my mind for a second. And we love the, the love of the cross and the message of grace and the message of salvation, but we forget that the reason the cross had to happen was because we read in Psalm 7 that God is a God who feels indignation every day. Why does he feel indignation? Is it because he's a characteristic God of anger and wrath? No, he is a God of love. His central characteristic is love. But if you love your children and you see them destroying their lives... Or harming others, what do you feel? Indignation. God loves us so much that as he watches us ruin ourselves, and by this I mean not just the way that we talk, well, you know, this is my life and I'm not affecting anyone else, and so we could talk about that as politics or policy or whatever, but when God looks upon it, he sees a child that is destroying him or herself, and he hates it. And he calls forth repentance and love. He says, see my justice, see my equity, see my righteousness and come and worship me so that all of the justice and all of the righteousness and all the wrath can fall on Jesus and not on you. And you can experience the fullness of eternal life and transformation in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron, verse 6, were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud, he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. Our Lord, O Lord our God, you answered them, and you are forgiving to them, but you were an avenger for their wrongdoing. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. We should look at Aaron and Moses and Samuel and we should say, look at these guys. Look at their their power and look at what God did with them and look at their life and look at their authority and look at their holiness and look at all that they've done and, and look at how they prayed to God and God answered them because there was a reciprocal relationship where God said, this is what I'm calling you to. And Moses and Aaron and Samuel and many other saints of old said, yes, we will do it. And so as you pray to God, God hears that prayer and he sees your obedience and faithfulness and he pours out his blessing. That is the way God acts. But what did it also say? That Moses and Aaron and Samuel were not immune from their sins. 
And if God judges those who are much greater than any, any of us here, Moses and, and, and Aaron and Samuel, these, these prophets and, 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 and high priests, if God looks upon them and says, I, I, I have to punish you, how much more for us? And so when we read, holy is he, come before him with fear and trembling, it isn't as though there's no mercy. It isn't as though there's no grace. There's plenty of mercy and there's plenty of grace. They didn't call it the throne of God. They called it the mercy seat. If that is true, there's all kinds of mercy, but it begins, begins with repentance. It begins with holiness. It begins with bowing the knee. It begins with worship where we get on our face before God and say, not my will, but your will be done. And if we can't pray that in honest humiliation and obedience, we don't know the first thing about worship. We haven't met it. We haven't done it. Exalt the Lord, our God, and worship at his holy mountain. So we see the grounding of our worship is the knowledge of God. It is come to, coming to understand and to know the living God, not the God of our own creation, not the God of our fiction, not the God that, uh, that we would like best, but the God who really is the God, as we saw in Psalm 99, who has dominion and a power and authority, who makes the peoples tremble, who makes the earth quake, who's enthroned upon the cherubim, these great beasts which drive his chariot. The God who has established his, his justice and his equity and his righteousness. I want you to notice that he establishes it where? He establishes it amongst his people. Because we can't expect it outside the world. We can and should and must demand it within his people so that the world could look upon us. You remember Jesus in Matthew 5, he says, he says, you are a city on a hill. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And Paul says, we are the ones who are to shine like stars because it is here and only here where Jesus Christ is Lord, Savior, and Master that male and female, black and white, slave and free can all call themselves one because we are all paupers at the foot of the cross. And no one can hold a grudge against another one because how much has God forgiven you? How dare you hold something against someone else? The one place where we don't look upon, down upon our poor in the midst but rather say, brother, how can I help you so that there's no hungry or need amongst us so that the world looks at the church and says there is a God amongst those people. Is that us? Because if it's not, our worship is hollow and vain and meaningless and God doesn't want it. He says, look upon the servants of old and be amazed at God's faithfulness to them. But don't be fooled in thinking that you are above or beyond God's continued reproach. And so watch your lives and your doctrine carefully. Paul pleads with Timothy. He pleads with us. He says, watch and be careful. Don't be slack or lazy or think just because Jesus died on the cross for your sins, you can invoke that and just walk away as though, well, whatever I do now is just fine because Jesus will cover it over. Absolutely not. You bring disgrace upon the one who bought you. We should fall down dead 
as we read in Revelation 1, fall down on our faces before God and say, God, we don't deserve your presence. We don't deserve your glory. We don't deserve your grace. But I love, I love what I read in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not. Because you have one who intercedes for you, not because you're better or smarter or wiser or more beautiful than anyone else, but because of God's rich, amazing, and wonderful grace. And that is a message for all of us broken and flawed humans. This morning as we conclude, I invite you to worship. If that means you stand up and raise your hand, if that means you get on your knees and you bow before the one who saved you, whatever that means for you, let's worship our God, the Holy One of Israel. Let's stand and sing. In the morning